Acts chapter 22. Before we get into verse 1, I want to just take a moment and kind of recap a little bit of Acts 21, simply because our perspective, our angle, the direction that we're taking here uh, is a little different, admittedly. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the particulars. You can listen to our previous Bible study, other than just to say that we're kind of operating under a premise that the Apostle Paul, in going to Jerusalem, has made a misstep, that he's made a mistake, a big one, like Apple Maps bad kind of misstep. Not good. He's in Ephesus, third missionary journey. And the Lord purposes, the Spirit tells him very clearly to go to Rome. Paul got it. He got the message. He got the directive. But he wanted to go first to Macedonia, Achaia, and then to Jerusalem before going to Rome. And if you recall in our travels through his third missionary journey, there was some resistance even then. He goes to Macedonia, he gets to Corinth, and then there's an assassination plot. He abandons the plan, still determined to go to Jerusalem, but he's going to find another way. Then, despite the continued warnings of the Holy Spirit, that chains and tribulations awaited him, and then the loving counsel of his friends not to go, Paul remains stubborn and his determination to go to Jerusalem. He refused the warnings. He resisted his friend's counsel. Now, we understand that the Holy Spirit, in regards to the way that he leads and guides us, he doesn't do that through other people. He speaks to our own hearts. But you'll never find an instance in Scripture where we're to deny all of the loving counsel of our friends. Not one person in the entire experience, not one of Paul's trusted advisors say, you know what? It's crazy, chains and tribulations await you, but you know what? You feel as though the Holy Spirit has determined this and we're gonna come behind you and we support you. As a matter of fact, as we saw last Sunday, they were there pleading with him in tears. Paul, don't go, don't go. Sadly, upon his arrival, Paul further compounds his initial misstep by then capitulating to the wishes of James and the elders by compromising his core beliefs. Though he'd hoped to build a bridge with his critics, his attempt, as we saw, epically failed. What was really only produced was a group determined to kill him, morphing into a mob. The Romans were forced to come from the fortress of Antonio down to rescue Paul. Then, consistent with everything we know of the Apostle Paul, as he's being brought into the fortress of Antonio, he requests of the commander an opportunity to address the crowd of Jews who have just made an attempt on his life. Acts 21 closes with the commander. A man will we'll learn in Acts 23, his name is Claudius Lysias. He grants Paul the opportunity, the permission to speak, hoping that in doing so, he would be able to gain a better understanding as to why the Jews were bent on killing him. If you'll recall, upon arresting Paul, the commander's thinking that he was this Egyptian that had tried this, this riot, this revolution before, as Paul speaks perfect Greek to him, he realizes, wait a second, this is not an Egyptian. This is an educated man. Paul wants the opportunity. The only reason he's granted the opportunity to speak to the group of Jews who have just tried to kill him is because the commander wants to know why they want to kill him. Now, understand, the opportunity to publicly address his countrymen, to stand there and to present Jesus as the Christ to the nation of Israel, it had been a dream of Paul. 
And not only had it been a dream, but in some regards, the, the scene, the setting, the circumstances are ideal, perfect. Paul can not only share Christ with the Jewish mob, but they can't kill him because he's in Roman protection. So it's perfect. He can share what's on his heart free of a beating. Well, we're told, verse one, Paul, given the opportunity, he stands up and he says, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. So Paul said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous towards God, as you all are today. Now, while it's important to remember that Paul has been accused by these Jews from Asia of three things, minimizing the importance of the law and defaming the temple, both of these stem from a third, the general perception that Paul was somehow anti-Hebrew or anti-Jew. This means that before Paul could ever get to the point of addressing these misconceptions about his positions concerning the law or his positions concerning the temple, Paul must first deal with the topic of his own Jewishness. Obviously, this opening line, brethren and fathers, intends to build a bridge, hoping that his audience then might grant him the opportunity to, quote, lay out on a, uh, his defense. Now, before the age of Wikipedia, what most people here, the first century, this audience, what most people knew concerning Paul had been completely left to the rumor mill churned by his detractors. Sure, Paul was known as the man turning the world upside down for the sake of Christ and the gospel, but very few people understood Paul's backstory. As a matter of fact, we're told in Acts 21, verses 33 and 34, that when the commander came near and took Paul, the commander asked who this man was and what he had done. Look at the response. Some of the multitude cried one thing, some another. So when the commander could not ascertain as to the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be brought into the barracks. Now, in order to correct the murky record that had been fostered by his critics, Paul begins by telling his audience something some of them might not have known. He says that, indeed, I'm a Jew. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city. He points to his heritage, and then he explains that while in Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, I was taught according to the strictness of the law, and I was zealous towards God as you all are today. Not only is Paul here right from the beginning, making sure his audience know that his ethnic heritage was pure, but he goes a step further by making sure people knew, of which they probably didn't, that he uniquely had been given a elite religious upbringing most in the world couldn't afford. He's saying, I'm a Jew. Yeah, okay, I was born outside of the homeland, but I was brought up in Jerusalem. I was taught at the feet of Gamaliel, this famed rabbi, the strictness of the law. I was zealous. Paul's whole point here, his whole introduction, is to let them know that he had been just like they were. Born a Jew, raised in Jerusalem, 
taught according to the strictness of the law by Gamaliel, not to mention zealous towards God, just as they were that day. Paul is making sure that his audience knows that he can relate to them. He can relate to their theology. He can relate to even their rage. It's like, I get it. I understand why you're so upset with me. He even goes so far as to say, years ago, I would have been exactly where you are, picking up those same stones. Now, to hammer home this point, this relatability, this likeness, Paul continues by now explaining how zealous he had really been. He says, verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons, both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. It's as though Paul is saying, while in your zeal, you just tried to kill me. And my zeal, I was successful. It's kind of like Paul's like, good try. You're zealous towards God and you tried to kill me. I was zealous towards God. I succeeded. I was successful. And my zeal, he says, I persecuted this way to the death. You tried to kill me. I did it. I killed them. I bound and delivered into prison people indiscriminately, men and women, even traveling to Damascus to root out this evil cancer. Now, before we continue, I think it's once again beneficial to set a context of what Paul is saying to a larger point. You know what this group of people haven't done? They haven't read the first part of Acts. Like they don't know Paul's history at all. For many in this audience, what Paul has just said runs counter to everything they knew. There is an element where what Paul is sharing would come as a total, complete shock to this audience. For 20 years, longer than probably some of them had even been alive, Paul was a staunch, outspoken, public follower and defender of Jesus. The idea that at some point that man, Paul, had originally been an avid opponent of the way, persecutor of the way, this would have been like mind-blowing to some of the people there. They didn't know this about Paul. They, his history was murky and his approach was murky. The fact that this guy was persecuting the church, that's craziness. Now, now get Paul's strategy. His strategy, I think, is brilliant because most of the people that are present knew him as a Jesus freak. He wisely and honestly presents his former life in Judaism and his persecution of the church in order to induce in the mind of this crowd a question. He wants them, as they're listening, to think. Wait a second. So he is a Jew, and he was, okay, he was born in, in Tarsus, but he, but he grew up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel. Paul was a pupil of, of Gamaliel, and he was strict concerning the law, and, and, and then he was a persecutor? Like, as, as they're hearing this, many for the first time, Paul wants them to reach this question. <laughs> what happened? Like, man, you were right on. Like, you were just like us. You were on the straight and narrow. But that's not where you are now. So what in the world took place that caused such a change? He answers the question. He says it happened, verse 6. That as I journeyed, 
and came near Damascus. At about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light. They were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, good Jew, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, he came to me. And he stood and he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him and he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. May your sins be washed away from the calling on the name of the Lord. Now, for a full examination of Paul's dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, I'd like to just refer you to our studies in Acts chapter 9. We covered uh, this account, this situation in great detail. Uh, I don't want to rehash all of the particulars, other than to say that I think it's once again important that we keep in mind that few people had ever heard Paul explain what had happened to him on the road to Damascus. People knew he was a Jesus follower. They didn't know his past. They didn't know he was a persecutor. Now they're sitting here thinking, what happened? And they don't know. They don't know what happened on the road to Damascus like we do. They, as mentioned, haven't read Acts 9. Those with history knew that from Jerusalem, Paul had traveled to Damascus, and he had gone there intending to persecute Christians. And yet, not only had there never been a report of a persecution in Damascus taking place, but Paul goes MIA. For two to three years, Paul disappears. Galatians 1 says he went into Arabia. Then, to confound matters, when Paul finally resurfaces in Damascus, what do they see? He's immediately hanging out with Christians and publicly proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. The mystery for the audience deepens further when being run out of Damascus, Paul does come to Jerusalem, but he only spends 15 days in the city before heading to Tarsus where he'll reside for the next decade. Now, what's interesting about the two weeks that Paul spends in Jerusalem, these 15 days, is that while we're told Paul privately recounted the events surrounding his dramatic conversion. He does this to the apostles in Acts 9, verse 27. There is no record of Paul speaking publicly of the things that had taken place. Everyone Paul had known, they've never been given an explanation. Paul has never told them. He's never spoken about it. What's fascinating is that there's only then two other instances where Paul ever comes back to Jerusalem. And in both instances, 
It's just private. It's a private scene. In Acts chapter 11, he and Barnabas bring financial aid to the church. No record of ministry happening publicly. Then in Acts 15, once again, Paul and Barnabas come back to Jerusalem, but they meet with the elders of the church privately, the Jerusalem council. Never before has Paul publicly spoken of his conversion on the road to Damascus. It kind of took me back as I was studying it because I thought, of course, Paul shared it all the time. He hasn't. He has in a couple instances in a private setting, but he's never done it to the masses. He's never done it in Jerusalem. The people in the audience, they don't know what happened on the road to Damascus. So what they're hearing is revelation. While we know what took place on the road to Damascus, because we've read Acts 9, few people outside of the inner circle of the Jerusalem church had ever been given an explanation about what happened to Paul. People knew something had to have occurred for Paul to be go, like to transition from being an opponent of the way to the chief proponent, but few, if any, had ever been given the actual story. In our text, did you notice something else that Paul does? He even mentions that the only other witnesses there that day, when the bright light shone, the only other witnesses, while they did see a light, and heard a noise, they didn't actually understand what was being said. They didn't know. They didn't know it was Jesus. They didn't know it was said. Paul's silent for a couple days, not telling anyone what took place. So there's never, there's been a lot of mystery, a lot of confusion, but Paul has never gone on the record and said exactly what happened. So get with the flow. In recounting his previous life in Judaism, Paul has left his audience considering what could have possibly happened that would have caused such a dramatic transformation. Now, for the first time, Paul goes publicly on the record explaining that while he was traveling to Damascus with the intention of persecuting the church, his life experienced a radical change. How? Through an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Now, while we're refraining from getting into the particulars of this event, because we've already covered them in our exposition of Acts 9, I would like to point out the central idea that Paul emphasizes in recounting his exchange in Damascus with Ananias. He says, and I'll kind of put it together for you, the God of our fathers chose me to know his will, to see the just one, to hear his voice, so that I might, quote, be his witness to all men of the things I had seen and heard. Here's Paul's point. At no point, at no juncture, in no way have I ever been against the Hebrew people. I've never deliberately acted contrary to my desire to please God, the God of our fathers, as a good, zealous Jew. I persecuted the way, but something happened to me. On the road to Damascus, going to persecute Christians, thinking I'm doing this for God, I heard the voice of God. I saw the just one, Jesus, that's being a phrase of the Messiah. And I realized that everything I had been doing had been acting contrary to, quote, his will. It's as though Paul is saying, it's only then that I adjusted course becoming Jesus' witness to all men of the things I had seen and heard. It's as though Paul is telling his audience, if you were in my sandals, what would you have done? 
I'm just like you. I, I was born just like you, raised just like you, thought just like you. You're zealous in your persecution. I was more zealous. But on the road to Damascus, God stepped in my way, introduced himself at Jesus and said, I'm changing it all. What do you expect from me? What would you have done? It's a profound argument. Now, while Paul's story may have served to correct some of the misconceptions concerning his Jewish heritage, as well as explain why he had obviously become a follower of Jesus, there are still two fundamental questions rattling around in the, in the, in the mind of this mob. First, why is this the first time we're hearing this story? You know, kind of like, great story, Paul, but why now? Why is this? Could have really helped if you had shared maybe before the things that had happened. Why for 20 years did you leave this as a mystery? And secondly, everything you said, okay, it makes sense, but it still doesn't explain why you are now practically ministering to Gentiles and not us. So he answers, verse 17, it happened. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, He's going to tell us something, by the way, that's recorded in no other place in Scripture. This is the only time Paul mentions this particular event. He says that I was in a trance, and I saw Jesus saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was standing by, consenting to his death, guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. But Jesus said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Now, in order to answer these two questions, still are floating out there, Paul fast forwards the narrative three years from his conversion on the road to Damascus to a private moment that occurred in the temple during this two-week, 15-day stay. Paul explains that while he's in the temple praying, which if you're against the temple, why would you be in the temple praying? You know, he's kind of highlighting the reality that I'm not anti the temple. I was there praying. And as a matter of fact, uh, God kind of honored that prayer because in the midst of my praying, Jesus appeared in a trance. He, in essence, he was caught into ecstasy. Jesus spoke to him. And he gave him two specific things to do, right? We see this in the text. First, he needed to get out of Jerusalem quickly. Why? Because, quote, the Jews would not receive his testimony. Paul is basically telling them that he had come to Jerusalem with every intention of publicly sharing the things that had occurred to him, his testimony. He had come to Jerusalem to share with the, the multitudes that Jesus had appeared to him on the road to Damascus. But he abandoned this, these plans for one reason. Jesus showed up and said, don't. And he's got this kind of interesting relationship with Jesus because when Jesus shows up, it's often with a bright life, light and he becomes blind. You know, it's kind of like, let's try this again, Paul. Don't go, don't speak, don't share. Like to his own admission, Paul, he even affirms that, that this revelation kind of caught him off guard. He'd come to Jerusalem seeking to share his testimony with a heart for the Jews, to minister to the Jews. And what Jesus is saying is kind of running counterintuitive to his heart. 
Like he's kind of in disbelief. As a matter of fact, in attempting to enlighten God as to why they would receive his testimony, look at what he says. He says to Jesus, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprison those who beat you, you know, those who believe on you. When the blood of, of Stephen was shed, you know, I was consenting. I was holding the clothes of those who were killing him. It's as though Paul's saying, like, Jesus, you think they won't receive my testimony. Of course they will. I mean, I've got street cred. I mean, of all of the people for them to listen to, to receive, it would be me. Now, on a side note, I'm just going to kind of give you a, a good idea, something that, that you should consider often. Anytime you find yourself in an argument with God, you're wrong. Like, I'm just going to go out on a limb. Like, if you're arguing with God, that very reality should serve as a good indicator that whatever you're arguing against or arguing for, that you should just shut up and listen and then obey. But, but do you get Paul's heart, his honesty here? I mean, here he is. He's standing there. The scene, the fortress of Antonio, a mob that just tried to kill him. He's like, I, guys, I came to Jerusalem with every intention on sharing my testimony. I wanted to tell you what happened to my life on the road to Damascus. I wanted you to know that Jesus was actually alive, changed me, was willing to do the same for you. And the only reason I didn't is because Jesus told me not to, saying that you wouldn't receive the things that I wanted to say. Now, it's at this point that, that, that Paul, he kind of pulls the pin and he throws a live hand grenade into the armory because he tells them, he continues. He says, and it's, it's kind of because you wouldn't receive my testimony that Jesus commanded me to depart from Jerusalem intending instead to send me far from here to the Gentiles. <laughs> They listened to him, verse 22, until this word, then they raised their voices. They said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He's not fit to live. They cried out. They tore off their clothes. They threw dust in the air. You know, they didn't do it when Paul's like, I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. They didn't do it when he's like, Jesus changed. They did it when he makes the statement that Jesus sent me to the Gentiles. Now understand the reason that this mob lost their mind at this point, was not just the idea that God had sent Paul to the Gentiles. That would have been like a simple prejudice. I'm convinced what irked them even more was a little nuance included. It was the notion that God had sent Paul to the Gentiles at their expense. Like, don't forget why Jesus was sending Paul to the Gentiles. We're told they, the Jews, would not receive your testimony against me, concerning me. The Jews had rejected God, the, like all three members of the Trinity. God the Father in the Old Testament, they resisted. They nailed the Son to a tree. They resisted the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Look at the events following Pentecost. Like at this point, what more is there? Like you've rejected the three amigos. There's no one left. There's nothing left. There's nothing that can be done for them. Like the implied point that Paul is making is that in rejecting Jesus, the Jewish people were actively resisting God, which is why God's revelation was moving from them to the Gentile. That's what upset them. It's interesting to note 
that Paul's attempt to reach his brethren, it proved fruitless, didn't it? Not only did it prove fruitless, but I, I find it fascinating that it fulfilled the, the very prophetic word that Jesus had shared with Paul so many years earlier, right? They will not receive your testimony concerning me. Not only did the people resist what Paul presented, but all he accomplished was stirring up more violence and more outrage. So the commander, verse 24, ordered Paul to be brought back into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. They also bound him with thongs. But Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Now, in this first century culture, while there was not many human rights, the rights of Roman citizens under Roman law were far-reaching. Like Roman citizens were a protected class. Not only was it required for a Roman to be tried and found guilty before punished, a citizen would have the right to appeal their case to Caesar himself. The reality of the situation was that the commander had actually already violated Paul's civil rights by having him bound. The notion of then having him examined under scourging, which is for the most part, we're going to beat you till you confess, would have been so egregious, according to law. The commander himself and those involved with the process could be punished by their own death. Which then explains why the commander comes and he, and he says to Paul, tell me, are you a, a Roman? So Paul answers, he says, yes. But the commander said, with a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. But Paul says, I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman because he had had him bound. I love this. Did you kind of notice something? I, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is the twisted way that I think. But do but you notice that Paul, it wasn't until he had been bound and like kind of tied up on the scourging pole that he decided to break the news he was a Roman. Like, was this just an accident? Like, did, did the scene unfold so quickly? It was such a rush that no one would listen to Paul. He didn't really have an audience with anyone. You know, that, that it's, it's until they're pulling the, the, the whip back that he's like, oh, time out. Like, why wait? Was it intentional? Was it an act? I think it was intentional, personally. Maybe, maybe, like I said, maybe that's just the, kind of the twisted way I read things like this. But I think it's shrewd. It's kind of clever. Because knowing that because they bound him, like allowing them to get to that point, never asking, are you a citizen? Paul knows that the commander and everybody involved are already guilty of a crime. It's kind of like Paul's like, yeah, you know, this isn't lawful, right? And they're all like, what? And then they unbound him and he's like, I'm gonna keep that ace in the hole in case I need it. In case there comes a point where I need a card to play, if things turn sour, I got one. Now, before we close, I do wanna make a couple of observations. First, one of the incredible things I'm reminded every time I read the story of Paul's conversion is the reality that Jesus stepped into Paul's world 
uninvited. Right? Paul's not on the road to Damascus seeking Jesus. He's seeking the followers of Jesus to kill. He's not on the road with the intention of encountering the resurrected Jesus. He's rejected the resurrected Jesus, resisted the resurrected Jesus, fighting the resurrected Jesus. And yet Jesus appears anyway. Now, what's, what's glorious about the way that Scripture sets all this up is that if you're a seeker, like if you're really seeking the truth, you're seeking to know, there's so many promises that you will find what you're looking for. Proverbs 8, verse 17, the Lord said that, that those who seek him diligently will find him. Matthew 7, verse 7, Jesus even said, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and the door will be opened. And, and while that's true for the seeker, and that's a word of exhortation, if you've not figured out this Jesus thing, if you're trying to ascertain what the truth is, if you're diligent, and you're genuine in that pursuit, I promise Jesus will cut through the darkness and you will find him. But if you're not looking, one of the things I love about Jesus is that Jesus kind of crashes parties even when he's not invited. Like, oh, so that's how you're gonna approach it. I don't care. I'm gonna show up anyway. He's uninvited. Now, you still have to make a decision. Paul still had to make a decision, right? But I love the fact because this reveals how much Jesus loves us, that even when we're resisting and even when we're fighting and even when we're kicking, Jesus is still willing to pull back the darkness, to shine his light, and to reveal himself. Hey, if, if you're a parent and you have a prodigal, you have a son or a daughter that's running, and they're not looking, and they're resisting, you keep praying, because you know what? Jesus can still reach them. The second thing is, is the fact that I'm struck by the reality that when Paul is finally given the opportunity, like his dream opportunity, to share Christ with his brethren, this great theologian, he chooses to give his testimony. Like, instead of presenting theological proofs or sharpening the dagger and going to town with apologetical arguments, all of which Paul could have done easily, he instead just points to the trajectory of his own life as being the greatest evidence of the resurrected Jesus. He points to his own story. I mean, how else could you explain how Paul goes from being an enemy of Jesus to an avid follower? You know, it's really hard to argue with a person's personal encounter, which I bring up as an encouragement. Because while you might not necessarily have all your theological T's crossed and I's dotted, and you might be very intimidated by trying to... to, to to get into a theological or apologetical conversation with someone you know that, 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 that isn't a follower of Jesus. And that scares you, and that, and that has deterred you entirely from sharing your faith. What if, what if there's a question I can't answer? Then you say, I don't know how to answer that. It's okay. You're, you don't, you're not infallible. You don't have all of the answers. 
But there is something that we all do have, don't we? Paul has all the theology and he's got all the arguments, but when he has the opportunity, he reverts to a testimony, doesn't he? He shares his story because that's powerful. And you have a story that can be shared. However, with that in mind, I I do also want to point out that looking at Paul's example, I'm struck by, by the reality that the power of a testimony, the power of your testimony, depends on entirely on the life you're presently living. I'm going to say that again just to make sure. The power of your testimony depends entirely on the life you're presently living. Like Paul's story, Paul's testimony, it was powerful. It powerfully presented evidence of a transformation, an encounter. Why? Because who he now was stood in direct contrast with who he had been. The power of your testimony depends entirely on the life you're presently living. Let me ask, if no one can tell you're a Christian without you telling them you're a Christian, are you really a Christian? I I know that that's kind of a raw way of presenting it. And immediately there might even be a little bit of resistance to the, the, the nature of the question. I get it. But, but let me take the same question and throw in a couple different things to, to illustrate how relevant the question is. If no one can tell that you're a supermodel without you telling them that you're a supermodel, are you really a supermodel? If no one can tell, probably lying to yourself. Like, if no one can tell you're a Braves fan without you telling them that you're a Braves fan, are you really a Braves fan? Probably not. How about this? I think, I think this nails it. If no one can tell you're sober without you telling them that you're sober, are you really sober? Probably not. Like, honestly, if no one can tell you're a follower of Jesus without you telling them that you follow Jesus, are you really following Jesus? Like, what Paul's testimony illustrates for us is that an encounter with Jesus will naturally bring with it fundamental, life-altering changes that can be seen and experienced by those around you. You know, when Jesus describes who he wants his followers to be in the world, he uses two phrases, right? He says we're to be the salt of the earth and that we're to be the light of the world, neither of which you can hear. Neither of them talk. Salt doesn't talk. The only reason you know salt is salt is how. You experience it. You taste it. It's not what you say that makes you salt. It's how you live. That when people encounter your life, that when people come across you, that they get, whether they can place it or not, a taste. 
of something the world doesn't have to offer, a taste of something that's heavenly, a taste of something that's satisfying, a taste of something that they want more of. When people bump into you, what do they taste? For many of us, it's, it's sourness. It's, it's gross. It's flavorless. If you're salt, you can be tasted by those you come in contact, but then you're light. Also, not something that's heard, but something that's purely seen, right? I mean, the light is either on or it's off. It's either seen or it's not. When people bump into you, when people come across your path, what do they see? Do they see from your life a demonstration of a heavenly reality? Do they see from your life evidence of a supernatural influence? Do they see Jesus? Because ultimately, who's the light of the world? It's Jesus, not you. You're just a light bearer, a light carrier, a vessel. It's cliche, but so true. You might be the only Bible that someone ever reads. So when people are reading your life, what conclusions are they reaching about the God of the Bible? That he's hateful, that he's bigoted, that he's intolerant, or that he's loving and he's gracious and he's kind. Sadly, the world's false perspective of Jesus and you know what I'm talking about because we all get irked by it. We read a popular article or we watch some award show. We, we, we get a glimpse of how the world perceives Jesus. Do you know how the world perceives Jesus that way? Because we failed at representing him accurately and adequately. Like I've often thought, like what conclusions of, of Jesus do people get when they encounter me? Or you, us. We're to be salt and we're to be light. If no one can tell you're a follower of Jesus without you telling them you're a follower of Jesus, are you really following Jesus? I'd like to probably say no, you're not. But it's also with this, this in mind that when I consider a testimony, there's another reality that, that I find powerful. And that is this, the, the simplicity of a testimony. For in the simplicity of a testimony a very powerful yet radical concept comes to the forefront. We're reminded of it. Think about it for a moment. Your testimony. Think back to it. You're in the world. You're in sin. You're doing your thing. You're in rebellion. Boom. You encounter Jesus. Everything changes. From that in mind, like what, what is it that changed your life? Like what set your life on a new trajectory? What softened your heart of stone? What satisfied that longing for love, joy, peace, and purpose? What changed Paul? Was it religious zeal? Was it a greater personal discipline to obey the rules? Was it self-help? No, what changed Paul's life? What changed you? The only thing powerful enough to transform a life, whether it be Paul's, mine, or yours, the only thing powerful enough to really bring about change in humanity is an encounter with Jesus Christ. And since this is the case, a testimony should remind us what is so often and easily forgotten when it comes to the Christian life. 
the catalyst for change hasn't changed. What changed you then is the very thing that changes you now. You don't come to Christ and it's an encounter with Jesus that changes you to now have religion or greater personal discipline or self-help continue the change Jesus started. No, our change, our transformation starts with an encounter with Jesus and it continues always through an encounter with Jesus. It's why we don't follow religion. We're anti-religious. Religion never saved a soul. It just condemns humanity to hell. The only thing that changes a life and continues to change a life is a personal continued relationship with Jesus. It's a person, not a plan. The more I encounter Jesus, the more I spend time with Jesus, the more I talk with Jesus and listen to Jesus, the more my life becomes like Jesus, which is not some radically difficult concept. If you hang out with a crowd of jerks, guess what you kind of become? A jerk. Like if you hang out with a group of people that are avid college football fans, over time, at some point, you're gonna find yourself kind of rooting for the game because you're hang we're impressionable. We're moldable. If you wanna become like Christ, put your entire emphasis, your entire focus on just hanging out with Jesus. It's a personal encounter with Jesus. In closing, I want to read a quote by author Philip Yancey from his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He writes, By striving to prove how much they deserve God's love, legalists miss the whole point of the gospel, that it is a gift from God to people who don't deserve it, which, by the way, and people who continue not to deserve it. You still don't deserve it. The solution to sin is not to impose an ever stricter code of behavior. It's to know God. Women, much like the prostitute and really all people, we see in the gospels, they fled towards Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about themselves, the more likely they saw Jesus as a refuge. And then he, he closes, he says, has the church lost that gift. And I would say yes, because over time, Jesus sets us on this course. The flesh is so sneaky. Because over time, we, we, we end up with this sense of self-accomplishment, that we've somehow arrived, that we've somehow gained some victory, that we somehow have made it, that we're doing it, that we're good, that we're well. When in reality, none of those things are true. It's Jesus. And it's his grace. It's his unmerited favor. That God loves you just as much when you fail as when you do something good. Like, wrap your brain around that for a moment. You might have come here this morning in total despair because you ruined the week. And you're like, I... Jesus still loves you. It hadn't changed. Not a bit. He still died for you. Whatever sins you committed, still paid for. See, a testimony reminds me 
that yes, there should be a life change, but it reminds me how the life change happens. It's, it's encountering Jesus, and it's walking in that encounter. And so, Father...